Welcome to this week's edition of Ocean Allison, where I bring you the best in ocean science, education, and conservation through conversations with people who are creating positive change for the ocean. Ocean Advocate is David Brown. David is a world-renowned ocean filmmaker. His extensive knowledge and experience documenting the underwater world is demonstrated in his most recent film, Fragile Legacy. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Hello, Allison. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. I'm really ha- excited to talk to you. Yeah, I'm jazzed. So uh, to give our listeners a little bit of background, David and I recently met Last November at the Blue Ocean Film Festival and Conservation Summit, that was actually in Monaco, which is a really incredible event, I got to watch David's most recent film, Fragile Legacy, and then meet him and his co-producer, Dennis Jensen. So it was great to meet David there, and their film actually won Best Short Film at the Blue Ocean Film Festival. So congratulations, David, on that award. Thank you very much. So you've had a lot of success in the underwater video, photo, film production industry, which is really remarkable. Your work has been shown on Discovery Channel, Nat Geo, New York Times, NBC, Smithsonian, so many you could go on for a long time. But I want to talk about how you got to this skill level, how you got to the level that you're making such a large impact with the films and the photos that you're taking. So I know that you got your bachelor's at Cornell, and then after you graduated, you actually started working with the Cousteau Society. Can you talk to us a little bit about your work with the Cousteau Society and getting that position right after graduating and and what that entailed? Yeah, by all means. My real start in ocean work, I've always been passionate about the ocean. Uh, It was always the highlight of my existence to get to the shoreline as as a kid growing up. But my first professional work, at sea was with a cetacean research unit out of Gloucester, Massachusetts. And my job was to go out and photograph the underside of humpback tails for identification purposes and also serve as a naturalist where I was interacting with the public and giving them information about the animals. I did that for four field seasons and would go to sea every day for at least eight hours. And this is before Stellwagen Bank was designated a marine sanctuary. And it is an incredibly productive part of the ocean. Uh, there's a huge upwelling there, and it spawns sand eels and krill and everything else that whales need. So there's a resident population of humpbacks. We also saw finbacks and minkies. And it gave me a lot of, of time on the water and a lot of time with the animals, and it had a huge impact on my life. That gave me a whole lot of time getting really fast with a camera and developing the specialized skill of shooting at sea because you're on a moving platform. and this is prior to a lot of the stabilization capabilities that cameras have now, but still you had to be you know, really fast and really aware of what the animals were doing at all times in order to get those fluke shots because there was a few seconds when the animal would present its tail on a dive. So that was really critical experience. I then took the Sea Education Association semester as my last semester with Cornell, and it was basically – Going to Woods Hole, six weeks on shore, six weeks at sea. You learn basic oceanography, marine biology, seamanship, 
maritime history, celestial navigation, just really, really interesting and intense course. You design a research project and then you execute it at sea. We went straight out from Woods Hole and down the coast and down into the Sargasso Sea and then into the Indies and I jumped off ship. My, my semester was up in St. Thomas and my big plan was to work my way around the world with a camera and write about it and work my way around by sail specifically because I, I am in love with sailing. Kind of a lofty ambition you have when you're in your early 20s. Anyway, I, I got sidetracked. I went into the port of Miami on a yard period with the ship and I went to see a whale show at the Miami Seaquarium. And I had never seen a, an orca in captivity. Actually, until that time, I hadn't seen an orca, period. And I had real reservations about seeing one in a captive situation because it's a pretty god-awful thing to do to a complex creature like that, put it in a swimming pool, make it do tricks. But I, w I was intrigued. I wanted to see it. So I went to see it. And afterwards, I was talking to one of the trainers, the trainer who had been in the show, and he said that just lost a trainer, would you be interested in being a trainer? And I said, well, I, I don't think this is a really good idea. I don't, I don't like the practice. He said, well, uh, someone has to do it. We've got two trainers. We need three. It could be someone who really doesn't care about the animal, or it could be you. And I said, all right, I'll try it. I lasted all of four months. I was the world's worst whale trainer because I just couldn't stand it. It was really pretty awful to see the animal in a captive situation every day. But I did have the privilege of interacting with the animal and you know, I could ride the whale and stuff like that, but uh, it really had an impact on me, and I had to leave, and I couldn't really process, I couldn't really handle the fact that that poor creature was going to be in a, in a swimming pool all its life. It was going to be cut off from its own kind. Uh, it was about 13 years old at the time. This is Tokate, or Lolita is how it's billed down in the Miami Seaquarium. You know, the fact that it should be there for her entire life, which could be 90 years, Without her kind, again, the male that had been in there had basically committed suicide. He had died of an aneurysm after ramming the glass. I, I went away with some very strong opinions about the whole thing. I'd gone in with, a, with opinions, but I came away with very strong opinions that it wasn't a good idea to keep a cetacean in, in a captive situation. And uh, I was getting ready to go back to sea, and I was getting ready to get back on my global journey, and I'd signed onto a, a yacht that was going transatlantic. And I heard through the grapevine that one of the big dive conventions in Miami was going to have a Cousteau presence. So I went to the exhibition, and I ended up talking to the person from the Cousteau Society who was in charge of it, Tim Knight. And he listened to my resume and said they were actually looking for someone who could represent the society on a lecture circuit because Jean-Michel Cousteau at the time was the only one doing that, and it was an important part of their outreach, and who could also be functional in the field for them. I had both. I said, well, great. How do I apply? He said, well, you have to show me show me that you're the guy, and so why don't you set something up where I can come see it? I said, well, where are you? He said, well, I'm based in New York. We're down in Miami at the time. I said, all right. So I went back to where I was staying in Miami and where I was about to leave and called the skipper of the vessel I was signed on to and said, I, something's come up. I can't do it. Hitchhiked up to New York, stayed with some friends and started making phone calls and ended up speaking to the American Cetacean Society. I, I said, you know, would, would you be interested in having a presentation about the human experience of cetaceans in the wild versus in captivity? By then, I'd spent four field seasons showing people the animals in their environment. And then I'd spent these four months working as a trainer where people were experiencing the animal in an artificial environment. And there were such fundamentally different 
experiences of the creature. By that, I mean whales of any kind. They said, yeah, it's, it's a hot topic. Come talk to us. So they had a great house, and I, I went. And Tim came to see the show, and he said, you're it. You're who we need. I said, great. What's next? He said, well, you have to interview with the Cousteaus. <laughs> I said, great. <laughs> Where are they? He said, oh, I don't know. <laughs> they could be anywhere right about now, but uh, we'll, we'll set it up. And I said, okay, great. So I went back to Gloucester, where I'd done all that field work, and I had almost enough time in between the Sea Education Association and my whale research time, almost enough time in to sit for my Coast Guard license. So I decided I'd do that as a fallback. And so I did so, and every week I'd call and ask Tim, hey, when, when's the interview? When's the interview? And he, three times it got set up and canceled because their plans changed. You know, they're, they're ocean folks, man. Their, their plans changed with the weather. Finally, I get the call saying, can you be in New York tomorrow? I went down and interviewed with Captain Cousteau and interviewed with Jean-Michel and uh, was offered the job that night. Wow. Yeah, it was really something. It was quite the experience to meet Captain Cousteau, you know, having watched him growing up. And then what did your work entail working with them once you got that job? I developed a, a lecture series about the marine environment, about marine conservation, and put it out on the market for mainly for colleges and universities. And I'd book a pretty heavy schedule. I'd usually do, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30 lectures in the fall and 20 and 30 lectures in the spring. And then in between, when I wasn't on, when I wasn't on the lecture circuit, the other times I'd go out in the field and join either Calypso or Alcyon or a flying team or whatever and be part of the crew diving and shooting stills and stuff like that. It was a dream gig. I was very, very fortunate to have been offered that spot by Jean-Michel and Captain Cousteau. So after you said seven years you worked with the Cousteau Society, at some point you actually chose to leave and start your own endeavor. You started Passage Productions. Can you talk a little bit about leaving the Cousteau Society, this very prestigious and highly noted organization. Can you talk about leaving that to start your own company? Yeah, it was obviously a tough decision. I felt conflicted, to say the least, and I gave it a whole lot of thought. I'd come up with an idea that was a little ahead of its time, as it turned out, but I called them uplinks. And the idea, I'd, I'd been on an expedition in, in the Pacific Northwest, where we were filming giant octopus and wolf eels for a couple weeks. And yeah, I'd been interacting with this octopus in its den, I knew exactly where it was, and I left that expedition and joined a cruise vessel. At the time, <laughs> one of the things the Cousteaus would send me out to do would be to lecture aboard cruise ships because everybody aboard, when I gave a series of talks, would become members of the Cousteau societies. So it was a way to build membership. It was also a perfect venue, obviously, to talk about the ocean because these people are sailing over it. And so I found myself sailing from San Francisco up to Alaska on a ship and looking out off the rail and seeing my dive site go by where I'd been diving with a giant octopus. And I thought, man, you know, this is pretty cool because I can talk about that. But wouldn't it be amazing if I could actually broadcast that live to the ship? And I talked to the captain about it. And he got pretty excited. And then we decided we would attempt to see if we could do that. And so I had to, at the time, the Internet wasn't all that well developed, to say the least. But basically, the idea was... We could go on a dive, and we could take all the passengers along. We'd put on AGA masks, which I'd used on filming white sharks and stuff where you need to be sending voice data to the surface, full face masks where we could talk, and we could listen 
to questions from from the ships. And these people could be sitting in the lounge, people who wouldn't otherwise be able to get underwater because oftentimes there, it, you know, it was an elderly crowd on some of these higher end cruise ships, and they were intrigued. And it basically was a great opportunity to keep going around the world because by then I'd been around a few times, but keep going around and try to get, again, this industry, the, the cruise ship industry, and the people who were out to vacation on the ocean to think about what's going on under the hull. It was very successful. Uh, we did uplinks all over the world. And we did the first uplink ever from underwater onto the Internet. And that was in affiliation with Jean-Michel at Jean-Michel Cousteau Fiji Island Resort. We did a, an uplink from there that went global. And, you know, at the time, the Internet, <laughs> it wasn't broadband. You know, there was probably a postage stamp-sized image of a really blurry diver. And it probably sounded a bit like this. But people loved it. People went absolutely crazy. We did another one from under the dock in uh, Santa Barbara, where I was basing Passage Productions, where we went global. And we had, you know, it'd be underwater showing people firsthand live interactive experiences of the of the underwater environment. And I had kids, you know, from Germany asking questions and from Mexico and from all. And it was just, it sounds easy now because it is easy now. At the time, it was kind of revolutionary. And that was a really interesting, again, way to try to get people thinking about the ocean who might not otherwise do so. So you, you developed these systems, these revolutionary systems to live broadcast from underwater in the ocean to the internet, basically as the internet is coming out and becoming mainstream. Yeah. And this was in around mid-1990s, I think? Yeah. Yeah, correct. Yeah. The first uplink, I think, was 96 or 97. So you were doing these live uplinks. What caused you to transition more so from that time to more present day into creating these produced films rather than going live from the ocean. Now you're taking footage from the ocean and elsewhere and combining it into making a film. What caused that transition? Well, it's a really good question, Allison, because there's strengths and weaknesses to both approaches. The immediacy of the live uplink is really, really powerful. Uh, it grabs people. At the same time, your production values aren't particularly strong, right? You can't take the time to make stunning imaging if you've got a very limited window. Uh, and you also can't convey certain things effectively in the period of time you have in an uplink alone. There's things that happen over time that really need, need to be treated in a more post-produced fashion. It was kind of interesting because I, I've now experienced a number of different approaches to ocean communication in that the Cousteau Society's approach to making documentary film, we produced a series while I was there called Rediscovery of the World, and that was four expeditions a year. The tactic for making film that, that the Cousteaus had developed was send people into the field ahead of the teams, sometimes up to a year ahead, and they're just digging for stories. And then they turn over a huge portfolio to the people doing the producing in the field, and the field teams, we just shot everything in sight, everything that looked interesting, everything that was germane to ocean conservation, and then it gets the story gets put together in post. And so that's a really interesting way to do it. It can be extraordinarily effective. The other way to do that, you know, in commercial narrative film, of course, you're going to have a script, and you work from a script, and you make you shape the reality. 
And my method has now evolved because I had the, the experience of doing these things live and also doing it, seeing the story put together in post after we'd gotten back from the field. I really wanted to try putting together storyline on shore prior to field, doing the research to support the storylines, and then still improvise as reality intersects with your script. I really wanted to do that. It was just seemed like a natural evolution for me. And so I've been pretty hooked on that. I think there's a space and a, an application for all of these approaches. I think we need anybody and everybody to speak out on behalf of the ocean in any way they can, because things are pretty critical, to say the least. Things are changing. And so all these disciplines, everything comes together, and it's a, just a different way of doing it that I wanted to try. Yeah, and it's worked for you, and it's kind of blending two different ways that you had experience working with. You're blending those two together, and you've created this way of storytelling, and I personally really enjoy it. I think it's really effective. And that kind of brings me into my next topic, and what I talked about in the intro of this podcast is your latest film, Fragile Legacy, that I got to see at Blue Ocean Film Festival, and that won Best Short Film there. So Fragile Legacy highlights and revolves around these blown glass ocean animals, this collection of glass marine invertebrates. Can you share kind of the history behind those glass models? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's not actually blown glass. It's actually uh, flame work or lamp work whereby they take a flame and they heat glass and then they shape it. It's one of the oldest glassmaking traditions. It's been, been around thousands of years. The Blaschkas were a father and son team operating at the turn of the last century. Leopold Blaschka was the father, and he'd been on an ocean voyage, a transatlantic voyage, in the 1850s and was becalmed off the Azores and watched these incredible creatures pulsing by. I love this story because it was always one of my favorite things to do on a night watch was to just go and shine a light into the water. He, he basically did that, just watched what was coming by and was intrigued by them because he was a master glass artist. Glassworking tradition went back to uh, Venetian time, 13th century Venice. The Blaschkas can trace their lineage back, and they were always glass workers. And they made glass eyes, they made jewelry, but he was also an incredible naturalist. He was really intrigued by the natural world, and he was just blown away by things like jellyfish and squid and other soft-bodied organisms he saw go by. So he went back, when he got back to Dresden, which is where they were based, he started experimenting with making making these things in glass because they looked like glass. You know, they're translucent or transparent, and they're just gorgeous, and he was taken by them and decided he was going to make them perfectly. He, he didn't just make them as objects of art. In fact, he probably would have refuted the thought this even was art, and he he set himself the task of making perfect reproductions of these things. And it turned out that this coincided with the public's interest in natural history. This was the time, this is the golden age of exploration, and, and people were going all over the world, and Darwin was doing his thing, and, and he started making these things. He ended up selling them all over the world. Uh, his son came along, joined him in the 1870s, I believe he officially became part of the business. And they just went to great pains to make these things perfect because they ended up being used 
not just to represent the creatures in museums and, and aquariums that were opening up around the world where they couldn't yet keep a lot of these creatures. They couldn't preserve them correctly. You put, try, put a jellyfish in, in, a, in a glass jar with a formaldehyde, it just turns to mush. Uh, but you make it out of glass and it, it holds its form and it holds its color. And so it was a really – it turned out to be a booming market. They sold these things to places as far away as New Zealand. And Cornell University purchased the collection that is the featured collection in Fragile Legacy. Uh, it's the largest such collection. Dr. Drew Harvell, who is a marine biologist at Cornell, is the curator of the collection. And she had the vision to see that these things get restored and used to continue the mission that they were made for, which is to get spread information about the ocean. And so you met Dr. Drew Harvell, I believe, at a talk she was giving, and you were captivated by this history and this the story behind these glass models. Can you talk a little bit about how just seeing her talk about them evolved into this film being produced? Yeah, it actually started... When I'd first gotten back to Ithaca, New York, which is where I was raised and where Cornell is, I'd come back for family reasons. And I was at the Johnson Art Museum, where I'm actually sitting right now, which is a wonderful college museum at Cornell. And I was walking through the exhibits, and I looked down and I saw a nudibranch. Uh, and I, uh, <laughs> I was a little taken aback because I'm quite far inland here, and there was a nudibranch in the display case, and I look over, and next to the nudibranch, there's a little tiny squid, and next to that's a little flatworm. These little perfect replicas of these things, and I read the blurb, and it turns out that Drew had loaned them to the Johnson Art Museum as part of the Cornell collection, and then a couple weeks later, I saw a poster advertising Drew's talk, and I said, my God, I got to go to that, so I went to that, and Drew and I had actually corresponded by email prior to that because we're both in the American Academy of Underwater Scientists. I didn't know her, though. I'd never met her, but I had filmed her husband. I'd, I'd worked with her husband in Hawaii on a project. He's a, a noted oceanographer, Chuck Green. And so I ended up sitting with Chuck watching her talk. It was packed, people just peppering her with questions. And I'm getting more and more excited listening to the story of the Blaschkas and the story of the Cornell Collection. Went up afterwards and drew surrounded by a throng of admirers, and I waited and waited and waited with Chuck. And finally, we kind of work our way through, and I said, we got to make a film. This is too good a story. It has to be a film. And she said, okay. <laughs> and, and that was the start of it, and that was five years ago. And it took four years to get the very first iteration of the project out there in the world, just because it was hard to fund. We did have some help from Cornell's Atkinson Center for a Sustainable Future. We had some help from the Corning Foundation. But it's been a real struggle putting the money together to make it happen. But wonderful things kept happening, like through a, another connection of Drew's. Ted Danson heard about the project, offered to narrate free of charge, because he's a huge ocean advocate and a wonderful guy. You know, fantastic things like that have happened to keep it going. When we won in Monaco, that was a real affirmation of the thing because, again, it's been a real struggle, but it's been a real labor of love to make it happen. And what I want to do in the, the long-term plan is to essentially activate Blaschka collections all over the world in the service of marine conservation. 
So again, they're in New Zealand, they're in Australia, there's collections in the UK, there's collections in the Netherlands, in Germany, uh, in France, in Italy. And there's ocean all around those places. And each of those sections of the one ocean we all share have their own share of challenges and their own share of innovative people making solutions. And if there's one takeaway for me, looking at what Leopold Blaschka did with his hands to recreate these perfect replicas of complex, gelatinous creatures like jellyfish out of glass, of all things, we're, we're a really innovative creature. We've transformed the planet, for better or worse, and it can go either way now. We've got to innovate in favor of a sustainable future, and that's really what I, where I see the story of the Blaschkas going. And, and that's largely the story that you tell in the film Fragile Legacy already, is that these incredible men made these incredible models and were inspired by them, and let's use them to con- not only continue to learn from them, but to inspire ocean conservation through them. So I love the story. I love that it combines art and science and conservation. I love all three of those things, especially when they relate to the ocean. Another thing I'd like to mention about the film is something that really stood out to me, because I always think about this when I'm making a film or I'm watching a film, is balancing and blending, pointing out the positives of a story and the negatives of a story. So in this case, highlighting the ocean's beauty and importance and all of the creatures that live in it, but then also not hiding that there is a lot of destruction occurring in our oceans and a lot of negatives facing the ocean. So can you talk about your philosophy on blending those two and how you did that in Fragile Legacy? Certainly, certainly. I, I've always been a an avid conservationist. I don't, I don't know quite how or why. My parents were lovely people, but they weren't particularly wildlife oriented. They were more culturally oriented. And I just seemed to have popped out of the womb entranced with everything that wiggles or, or moves or swims or flies. And that lasted through my entire childhood. And when I was in my adolescence, almost, I was, I was a tween. I remember watching a film on PBS, a documentary about endangered species. And The film included sequences of harp seals being bludgeoned to death, polar bears being shot from helicopters, prairie dogs being blown apart in slow motion by rifles. It was so god-awfully horrible that I became hysterical. Twelve-year-old me, you know, started screaming and crying, and my mother was the only time she ever, ever slapped me. She had to slap me to try to calm me down. And she finally got me calmed down, and I turned away from conservation and environmental issues for about three years after that because I was traumatized by it, and it was just too much. And at the same time, I'd experienced plenty of films where there was a better balance or a, a more humane balance, if you will, between the positives and the negatives. And those had always inspired me. And so... I am determined in my work to make sure that I don't traumatize people or frighten people to the point where they feel it's hopeless because then you've, it's self-defeating. The whole idea of doing what I do is to try to inspire positive action and positive change. And if you can't do that, if the story is just so dire and so grim, to me there's no point in making it. Sure, the ocean's in, in serious trouble. 
I think anybody who's aware of ocean issues knows that. The climate is shifting and it's changing everything. The temperature's warming, the ocean's becoming acidic. Part of the beauty, though, of the Blaschka story is that they were doing their work just prior to fossil fuel coming into its own as the driving energy resource in this, in this global economy of ours. And so had Leopold Blaschka been under been making a transatlantic voyage even 10, 20 years later than he did, he probably would have been under power. He probably would have been, they would have been burning coal and they would have steamed right past everything that so inspired him. But as was, they were traveling by sail and they were becalmed and he had an opportunity to actually experience the world. He was moving at a pace that enabled that. And it's fossil fuel that's changed absolutely everything. That's the, been the game changer. And it's not... It's not that anyone set out to destroy the planet. That's not the point. And that's, again, not a, a valid takeaway to me. Sure, there are people who have been bad actors, no doubt about it. People who have very deliberately moved ahead and ignored the dangers inherent in fossil fuel technologies. But I think the majority of us just have found ourselves born into this matrix. We're, we're stuck with it for the moment. That's the important thing. We innovated our way into that. We can innovate our, innovate our way out of it. We can now move past fossil fuel and move into a more sustainable global economy, and we have to. We simply have to. And so there's, again, all kinds of progress being made. We were filming for the uh, Fragile Legacy 1 that we, that's out now. We were filming off for Cife, which is down off of near Gibraltar. And we're filming these beautiful Blaschka organisms that they rendered in glass that are still there. Uh, some of them were endangered. For example, there's an orange cup coral. They've built a couple of marine sanctuaries around this orange cup coral that's down there that, that's only found in this one little stretch of the Mediterranean Sea. Sanctuaries are something I tout in the film because from a policy standpoint, that is the solution. Set aside big tracts of wild area where things can regenerate. So there's a solution. And on shore, it's one of the windiest places on the planet. So everywhere you look, there were wind farms. And they're generating a lot of their power that way. Germany, where there's multiple Blaschka collections, has a, a presence in the North Sea. And the North Sea has suffered terribly from fossil fuel extraction. But at the same time, Germany is the preeminent solar power on the planet right now. They've managed to innovate to the point where there was a day last year when they generated all their power from the sun. That's Germany. It's not a particularly sunny spot. <laughs> so there's, there is most certainly hope. And if everybody, everybody, with whatever skill sets they have, can allocate some of that skill set toward helping the environmental situation, then we can get through this and continue. And we have to. And so to me, to make the film saying it's, it's all dying and kiss our behinds goodbye, that doesn't do anybody any good. Well, I really want to thank you for creating so much positive change for the ocean. I think it's amazing what you're doing and your philosophy behind it is, I think, spot on. So thank you so much for making this film Fragile Legacy and for all that you've done for the ocean and will continue to do, I'm sure. Thank you so much, Allison, and you as well. Thank you for your work. So for our listeners, if you were inspired by what David has done and is doing, you can connect with him via Fragile Legacy's film website and also his Vimeo channel. So I will link to both of those um, when I post this episode on my website. 
And also, for those of you that would like to see Fragile Legacy or in person, you can see that coming up on May 14th at the Corning Museum of Glass, where the Blaschka collection is actually housed. People will be coming from all over the world. So I will also post a link to that event. So if you are interested in going uh, and seeing this film screened, it is an incredible experience. I can say that firsthand after seeing it at Blue Ocean Film Festival. And uh, so I will post all those links and you can reach out to David and uh, connect with him in those ways if you felt inspired by what he's done. So David, once again, I would really like to thank you for being on the podcast today and all of the incredible work that you're doing for the ocean. Thank you so much, Allison. You just heard David Brown, world-renowned ocean filmmaker and co-producer of the film Fragile Legacy. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at alisonrandolph.com and tune in next week to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.